Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16, on page 1175. Ephesians chapter 4, page 1175. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gift to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we, all are, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to all the measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. In, in, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word. Good morning. Tommy, thank you so much for reading our passage, brother. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for this glorious passage that we've just had read. Father, help me to do justice to it as I preach it. And Father, give us soft hearts to receive what you have to say to us. And we pray that, yeah, we're not only would we be attentive, but that we would think 
today hard about how we can put what your word says in these verses into practice here in our church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been called to greatness. Do you believe that? You have been called to greatness. Now, before you think I'm trying to be a motivational speaker or prosperity preacher, I can promise you that I'm not trying to be Tony Robbins or Joel Osteen. So allow me to explain what I mean. I'm not saying that you're going to lead your company into the FTSE 100 or that you're going to be in the Forbes 30 under 30 or that you're going to be remembered for your charitable work as Mother Teresa is. That is not what I mean. There is a a greatness that is bigger than any one of those things, than any success that we can achieve in this world. Be that financial, political, academic, charitable, relational, you name it. In verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is that calling? So back in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, Paul said his intent, that is God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul had said that God is bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So God is uniting all things under Christ. And God is displaying the church to the heavenly or spiritual authorities. God is uniting all things and he's displaying the church. Now... How do these two events relate? God is displaying the church because it is where his work of uniting all things under Christ has already visibly begun. You see, the church is the showpiece or display case of what God is going to do to the entire cosmos at the end of time. So God is showing off the church in the heavenly realms. He is telling the spiritual forces, look at my church. See how I've united people from all backgrounds into one body, one family. See how this Jewish background believer and this Gentile are praising me together. See how this conservative party member and that labor party member are praying to me together. See how these people from rival tribes are worshipping me together. See how these former two football hooligans of rival clubs are reading my word together. Do you see what we are? We are God's cosmic display case of his uniting work. That is what he has called us to be. It's incredible 
when you think about it. That's the calling upon us as a church. And it's why we are urged to live a life worthy of it. Chapters 4 to 6 are all about how to live a life worthy of this calling. Let me briefly um, show you how Paul is going to spell out uh, what living this life looks like. So in chapter 4, verse 17, he says that we must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That is, we must no longer live as the world does. And then in chapter 5, verse 21, he tells us to submit to one another. After this, he goes on to explain how this new life is to play out in the home and also in the workplace. And finally, he will tell us how to live in light of the spiritual battle that we're in as Christians. But the first thing, the first thing he wants us to know is this, about how to live our life, live a life in light of this calling, is this, we need to be united. We see it there in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity. And then in verse 13, until we all reach unity. How are we going to live a life worthy of our calling? We must endeavor to be united. Our first point is eagerly strive for unity. Now, Before we consider what Paul has to say about unity, I think it's worth asking why it's so important. Why is it that unity is is a core component of living a worthy life? Notice what verses 13 and 14 say. Until we all reach unity in the faith, And in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Did you notice what's at stake if we are not united? We will not be a mature church. A more literal translation of become mature is become a full-grown man. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's he's contrasting a grown-up man standing against crashing waves with a little toddler doing the same. Who is more likely to remain standing when a huge wave comes crashing down on them? The full-grown man or the toddler? It's, it's not hard, is it? Paul is saying, if we don't take unity, which leads to maturity seriously, then we will be like a toddler who is completely powerless to withstand the force of the ocean we will be thrown about 
helpless. And thrown about by what? By faulty, false teaching. Just last weekend, I was chatting with a man in his 30s who told me um, a bit about the church he grew up in. So I looked up uh, that church's website during the week, and on the church's website it says, we strive to be radically Christ-centered, which is beautiful, right? But it also says, this church is registered for the solemnization of marriage for both mixed-sex and same-sex couples. My friend told me how 20 years ago, this church will sound, but how over time it drifted theologically. Although that church claims to be radically Christ-centered, in reality, it is anything but. You see, Jesus welcomes all people. Yes, he does. But he calls them to repentance. He, he calls them to turn away from their sin. Jesus says, go and sin no more. This church says, go and sin some more. A church like that does not resemble Christ. Sadly, this, this toddler church's foot got caught by a strong undercurrent of false teaching, and it wasn't able to stand. It's tragic. And friends, we must not think that that could never happen to us as a church. You see, the church in Ephesus was a good church. Do you remember chapter 1? Paul was singing its praises. Yet Paul also felt it necessary to warn them about the dangers of immaturity, which comes from a lack of unity. So folks, we, we can't be complacent. It's really important that we strive for unity. Now, I don't know if you noticed this during the reading, but um, Paul speaks of unity in a way that has both present and future dimensions. So in verse 3, he says, make every effort to keep the unity. That's the present perspective. But there's also a future perspective. So in verse 13, he says, until we all reach unity. So, so there's a unity we already have, and there's a unity that we are working towards. Let's begin with our present unity. The way we maintain our unity, it's, it's impacted by two things. First, how we behave, and second, what we believe. Firstly, how we behave. You see what verse 2 says. It tells us to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Now, it's, it's relatively easy to be gentle and patient with people who are lovely to us, right? But it's harder when, when we are wronged or hurt by others, isn't it? When that happens, we often do not want to respond the way Paul tells us to. But if, if we are going to be united, then we're going to have to be a forgiving community. One that overlooks offenses and doesn't hold grudges. One that assumes the best of people. And one that serves the interests of others above our own. So how we, how we behave towards one another is very important for maintaining our unity. So too is what we believe. So in verses 4 to 6, Paul says that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Do you see the point? We have all these things in common. Now, I'm I'm not going to cover every area that Paul mentions, but look, by remembering, for example, that we belong to one body, the same body of which Christ is the head, and that we serve the same Lord. That's, that's a great motivation to be united. We're on the same team. So that's the present unity we have. Our behavior and our beliefs help to maintain it. But unity is also something we can grow in. It's not just something we want to maintain. How are we going to live a life worthy of our calling? We need to strive for unity. But folks, Paul has an encouragement for us. Wonderfully, Jesus doesn't leave us to our own devices. He enables us to grow in our unity. How are we going to strive for unity? By relying on Jesus' equipping. Here's our second point. Jesus has equipped us for unity. Have a look with me at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says... When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Uh, you can see from your footnote that, um, that that quote there is from Psalm 68, verse 18. When you look it up, it says he received gifts, not he gave gifts. Which might confuse us and might cause us to think, has Paul misquoted the psalm here? Here's why I think that's not the case. I think what Paul is doing is paraphrasing what the wider psalm says. So in that psalm, we, we actually find the king both receiving and giving gifts. Which is exactly what a king would do after victorious conquest and after they'd ascended the hill back to Jerusalem. Do you see what Paul is doing? 
He's simply choosing to focus on the giving that the king is doing rather than on the receiving. And he's doing this to make his point. And here's what that is. Through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, which is what verses 9 and 10 are about, Jesus has defeated and conquered his enemies. And as a result, he has plunder or gifts to give his people. That's the point Paul is making. Now, what are these gifts that the victorious King Jesus gives his people? We might expect Paul to to give us an elaborate list of gifts like he does uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, but he doesn't. He lists only four gifts. So have a look at verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Those are the gifts. Now I know five are listed there in our translation, uh, but here's why I think there are actually only four. So many scholars have argued that a better translation of pastors and teachers is actually pastor teachers. In other words, in other words, Paul isn't listing two roles, but one. So you don't have a pastor category over here and a teacher category over there. You have one category, pastor teachers. That is, people who pastor by teaching. Not only do I think that is a better translation of the Greek, I think it's also more consistent with what Paul says elsewhere. Pastors and elders, what do they do? They teach. So we have four gifts. Now how do these gifts from King Jesus help us to be united as a church? Let's start with the apostles. The apostles are those who met the risen Christ and have passed on his teaching to us. It's because of them, isn't it, that we know that Jesus lived, died, rose again, ascended, and is coming back. And it's through them that we have access to Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. The, the apostles clearly are a very important gift. The next gift is the prophets. They're the ones we find in the Old Testament who by God's spirit predicted the coming of Christ hundreds of years before it happened. When we look at the prophets in the Old Testament, we can see how Jesus matches the messianic portrait that was painted of him. Because of the prophets, we know that Jesus really is the promised king. He is the one who fulfills the messianic prophecies. Without the prophets, Jesus would just be a random guy who popped up claiming to be a king. And without the apostles, we wouldn't know that the prophesied Messiah has already come. 
Do you see how the gifts of apostles and prophets are essential to the church? Sorry about that. Now, Paul had actually made this this clear earlier in chapter 2, verse 20, where he said that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, why am I highlighting that? I'm highlighting it because he doesn't say the same thing about the next two gifts. He doesn't say that about the evangelists and the pastor teachers. Why not? They're important, but they're not foundational. And here's what I mean. A church can replace its evangelists and pastor teachers. Evangelists and pastor teachers come and go. But you can't replace the apostles and prophets. You can't replace the Old and New Testaments. Friends, without them, we've got nothing. The evangelists and pastor teachers, they're simply building on the all-important foundation of the apostles and prophets. And how do they do that? What do the evangelists do? Well, God has given them to speak the good news of Jesus found in the Bible primarily to unbelievers. What about the pastor teachers? God has given them to speak the good, of, good news of Jesus found in the Bible primarily to believers. Do you see how they build on the apostles and prophets? So we have four gifts. The first two are foundational. The, the latter two are not foundational, but they are important. But here's... But this is really important. This is really crucial for us to understand. The evangelists and pastor teachers are only important insofar as they proclaim what is taught by the apostles and prophets in the Bible. Sorry if I've labored that point, but I think it's really um, vital that we, we get it. Remember my, my friend's old church that I spoke about earlier. The teaching of the pastor there is not biblical. I think it's anti-biblical. I'm going beyond just saying unbiblical. Unbiblical is bad enough. Unbiblical is kind of, it's it's lacking Bible. It's not teaching what's in the Bible. Anti-biblical is actually teaching what is contrary to the Bible. That church has moved away from the foundations that pastor teacher has done that and therefore has no right to be a pastor teacher. You see, people like that lead the church into error. And what do we see in verse 14? That doing that is deadly. It leaves the church exposed like a toddler in the Atlantic to the towering, crashing waves. Now compare that to the pastor teacher who faithfully teaches God's word. 
that is a gift from King Jesus to the church. According to verse 12, um, faithful pastor teachers and evangelists equip us for works of, of service. Or as another translation puts it, uh, the ESV says, the works of ministry. So that we are built up and become mature as a church. Now here's what I find really interesting. Although listening to the teaching of the, of the pastor teachers is crucial... That's why Jesus gave pastor teachers to the church. It is not what Paul says that builds up the church. Rather, the church is built up as it does the works of ministry. And this raises two questions. The first is, are we doing the works of ministry? If, if that's how we're built up, then it's really important that we're doing it. The second question is, what are the works of ministry? Let's answer that second question first, uh, because it'll then help us to answer the first one. So what are the works of ministry? Have a look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love... We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every, by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What are the works of ministry? It's the whole church, the whole church, not just, the people, not just the people up here, the whole church speaking truth to one another. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we must just avoid fibbing. Chapter 1, verse 13, uh, in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul describes the gospel as the message of truth. That is what Paul wants us to be speaking to one another. The message of truth, the gospel. That is what it looks like for us to do the works of ministry. Let's circle back now to the first question. Now that we know what the works of ministry are, to what extent are we doing them? Let's consider a, a few examples. If you regularly attend a connect or small and local group, then you are engaging in speaking the truth in love. You're doing the works of ministry. Likewise, if you're in a one-to-one where you read the Bible with someone, you're doing the works of ministry. What about after the church service? What do you normally uh, talk about with others after the service has ended? Do you normally just talk about the weather? Or about what you did on Saturday? Or about what you're going to have for lunch? 
Or do you talk about the passage that's just been preached? Friends, that is an excellent way to be speaking truth, gospel truth to one another. I want to encourage us to speak more about the passage we've, we've heard preached on a Sunday. You see, it's by speaking gospel truth that we grow in unity and maturity, which makes us less likely to succumb to false teaching like some churches sadly have. You see, if you're, if you're a Christian, when you come here on a Sunday, you're not coming here primarily as a consumer. At least you're not meant to. You're coming as someone who belongs to the body of Christ and incredibly has an active role to play in its growth. Folks, what a privilege that is. Please don't ever think that you have nothing to contribute to church. You do. Each and every single Christian has a vital part to play in the spiritual growth and maturity of our church. Now, if you don't know how to do this after a, a, Sunday, a Sunday service, um, please don't feel like you need a theology degree in order to do it. You don't. It can be as simple as, as asking a fellow brother or sister, hey, what encouraged or challenged you from today's passage? Or hey, here's something that really struck me from today's verses. Or here's something I really needed reminding of from today's passage. Or hey, I have no idea what the preacher was on about today. Could you please enlighten me? And please don't allow your fear of what others might think to stop you from speaking gospel truth. Because that is how the church is built up. Now, I know sometimes we might think, oh, you know, if, if, I, if I bring up the sermon, then people might think I'm trying to be super holy or pious but you're not trying to be that. And look, if people think that you are, well then evidently they need to hear gospel truth because they haven't yet understood Ephesians 4. Friends, we have been called to greatness. We, we are God's display case of his powerfully uniting all things under Christ. So let's live a life worthy of that calling. We can do so by growing in unity and maturity as we speak gospel truth to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gifts you have given the church. 
Thank you for the foundations of the apostles and the prophets and for the evangelists and pastor teachers. Well, thank you how Jesus has given these gifts in order to build his church. Father, we pray that you would help us to play our part. Help us to prioritize speaking gospel truth in love to our brothers and sisters. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.